Good to see everybody. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to, let's guess now, <laughs> book of Revelation, chapter 21. So last week, if you were here, we talked about hell, because that's what was in the chapter. But tonight, we joyfully get to talk about heaven. Now, heaven is mentioned 500 times in the Bible. You may not realize this, but 55 times in the book of Revelation. So heaven is a theme that dominates the Bible from cover to cover. Um, you, you never know it, <laughs> given how little we hear about heaven from pulpits today. And even when pastors do mention heaven uh, in their preaching, it's often in passing, kind of passionless, stoic presentation at best. Uh, the great Charles Spurgeon, Prince of Preachers, he um, held classes for young um, pastors uh, and uh, preachers. And uh, so he was addressing a group of young preachers one day, and he told them that whenever you speak about heaven, let your face light up with heavenly glory. Now, you have to understand the time uh, that he preached in. In those days, the pulpit was very a very serious place. You never joked in the pulpit. In fact, if you smiled too much, or at all in some churches, you were considered to be the epitome of carnality, and they want to get rid of you. So Spurgeon understood that, that, you know, the pulpit was a very serious and somber place. But he really also felt, look, but when you talk about heaven, you got to let, as he put it, your face light up with heavenly glory. Well, one student raised his hand and asked, well, what about when we preach on hell? Spurgeon replied, when you preach on hell, your normal face will do. <laughs> there should be no subject as dear to us or as joyful for us to talk about and share with others as the subject of heaven. You know, I've mentioned this before, but maybe you've uh, heard the charge leveled at Christians who like to talk a lot about heaven. They're so heavenly minded. They're no earthly good. Uh, I don't know who came up with that little saying. I kind of think it was the devil. Uh, actually, the reverse is true. If you're not heavenly minded, you are no earthly good. No good for the kingdom of God. You know, it is biblical to have our thoughts dominated with the things of heaven. Remember what Paul commanded us in Colossians 3 verse 2, commanded us as believers, set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. You see, guys, the problem today with far too many Christians in America is that they're so earthly minded, they're no heavenly good. Too many Christians are so wrapped up in the cares of this life with all of its pleasures and possessions that they really, I don't know, don't have a desire to think much about heaven, if at all. Let alone dedicate their life here on earth in such a way that, you know, they want to build God's kingdom on the earth. Before service, I was talking to one of our guys, and he reminded me that of, of a group called the Morovians. And they were a group that lived well, at least a hundred so years ago. These folks were so sold out for God, they conducted a seven-day-a-week, 24-hour-a-day prayer meeting for 100 years. These were the kind of people that um, sold themselves into slavery so they could witness to other slaves. These were the kind of people that joined leper colonies knowing they could never come out to witness to the people in the leper colony. Now I gotta be honest with you, when I hear stories like that, I am not only convicted, I'm crushed. At my level of apathy, carnality, and complacency. And that's gonna spur me to begin to pray more to have that kind of heart. I mean, Jesus is coming back soon. What are we waiting for? 
It's time to say, Lord, this is the time. Pour your spirit on me like you never have before. I want to have that heart. I want to have that zeal. I want to love you that much that I will do whatever it takes. Uh, amazing. Um, but we don't live in those times, uh, unfortunately. And um, what we need to, to do um, is we're going to make heaven more of a priority in our lives. By the way we live, we need to spend more time talking about heaven, you know, thinking and meditating on heaven and sharing the coming joy and eternal bliss of heaven with others who um, see life on earth more and more as a meaningless, empty endeavor containing little joy and having no hope for the future. Now, we have the hope. We know what our future is going to be. But a lot of folks, they, they are not doing well. And we don't seem to care enough to do what we need to do to get them, get them the truth they need to help them. To People are never more open to God when they get more and more towards the bottom. And we're seeing more and more people hitting rock bottom. And um, they're giving up. I just read last week of a well-known uh, music guy. He, he, he was younger in, in bands, pretty well, well-known. I, I don't follow the music scene, so I, uh, you know, I never even heard of him. But I guess he's well-known. And um, he um, produced music. He wrote music. He was pretty high up there. People in the music profession knew him very well. Well, he went to Switzerland last week, age 66, and asked them to kill him, you know, assisted suicide, because he had uh, finished his life. He had finished his, his life, was done. He'd done all that he wanted to do, and so he was healthy. 66 is not that old anymore. I'm 66. <laughs> um, and uh, but they uh, killed him assisted suicide and um, that man needed Jesus and I would have to believe God got him the gospel but some people just don't embrace it they don't believe in it I, I really think that God is trying to shake us up, his people, shake us up through what is going on in our country today. Listen, to loose the hold the world has on us, to get us thinking more about the life to come. Even as Paul admonished us, turn to 1 Corinthians 7. And let me read this out of the NLT. 1 Corinthians 7, starting with verse 29. But let me say this, dear brothers and sisters. The time that remains is very short. So from now on, those with wives should not focus only on their marriage. Those who weep or who rejoice or who buy things should not be absorbed by their weeping or their joy or their possessions. Those who use the things of this world should not become attached or entangled in them. For this world as we know it will soon pass away. Those are incredibly relevant words for us today. Remember Demas, right? One of Paul's ministry team members. Paul talks about Demas right before Paul was executed, 2 Timothy 4.10. He said, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world. You know, far too many Christians today in this country are more concerned about bank accounts, houses, and cars than they are about their spirituality and service 
for the Lord. And I believe the Lord is using our current economic situation um, and, and all the social unrest and chaos. I think the Lord is using it all to pry the world out of the fingers of his people. I know one thing, what's been going on the last year and a half has really caused me to long for Jesus coming more than I ever have. Look at 2 Corinthians 6 for just a moment. So many Christians wrapped up in the world. Even though Paul said in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 17, Therefore come out from among them the people of this world. Now we have to minister to them. We need to love them in, in the Lord and pray for them. We're not to be monks. We're not to, you know, isolate ourselves, right, from the world. But come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. In the sense of fellowship, too many Christians are having fellowship with the world. It's not that they're trying to reach the world. They're right there involved with the world. The world has become their friend. God says, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Guys, the reason so many Christians are not longing for heaven is because they're having too much fun on earth. Now, I'm talking about America. I mean, when I read stories of Christians in third world countries, who live with poverty and persecution, they really long for heaven. They really long for heaven. And I think they're much richer than we are. Much richer, spiritually speaking. But guys, heaven is our true home, and we should long for it. As one well-known pastor put it this way, he said, and I quote, Sadly, that is no longer true for many in today's church. Caught up in our society's mad rush for instant gratification, material comfort, and narcissistic indulgence, the church has become worldly. Nothing more graphically demonstrates that worldliness than the current lack of interest in heaven. The church doesn't sing or preach much about heaven. Believers seldom discuss it. Songs are no longer written about it, and books about heaven are few and far between. Believers who do not have heaven on their minds trivialize, trivialize their lives, hinder the power of the church, and become absorbed with the fading things of this world. End quote. Let's quote well. 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17, you all know it. Let me read it to you. Where John admonished believers do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. And guys, I don't think I need to say this, but I will. He's not talking about not loving nature and the beauty of creation. That's not it. The world is, of course, John's way of talking about this evil, fallen world system that Satan controls and we have to live in, um, but should never live in us. But... He said in verse 16, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world, this fallen evil system, and the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Well, if that wasn't straightforward enough, we look at James. But no problem cutting it straight. James 4, 4, adulterers and adulteresses. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself, herself, an enemy of God. Those are strong words. But you know what? We've become so dull of hearing in the church of Jesus Christ in these last days. Um, I think we need a couple more John the Baptist. I say a couple, I'm many couple. Johns and James and those that will you know, preach it straight in love, 
but not water it down. One pastor gives some of the benefits in, in the Christian life for those who have a longing for heaven. I'll share these with you and we'll get into our text tonight. These are some of the benefits in the Christian life for those who have a longing for heaven. He says a genuine and strong longing for heaven has many important implications and benefits for the Christian. Such, uh, such a longing is one of the surest indicators of genuine salvation. And then he quotes Luke 12, 34, For where your treasure is, Jesus speaking, there your heart will be also. A genuine and strong longing for heaven also produces the highest and noblest Christian character. Those who spend much time meditating on heavenly things cannot help but have their lives transformed. A genuine and strong longing for heaven also brings joy and comfort in trials. Those who focus on heaven's glories can endure anything in this life and not lose their joy. When they suffer, they can say with Paul, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. That's 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17. He goes on, A, a genuine and strong longing for heaven is also a, a, a preservative against sin. Those who set their minds on things above are less likely, less likely to become ensnared by earthly temptations. And then he quotes from Romans 8. For those who are living according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are living according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. He said a genuine and strong longing for heaven will also maintain the vigor of believer's spiritual service. Those who are negligent in the Lord's work and make only a token minimal effort to serve him demonstrate little regard for eternal things. They foolishly think that the reward for pursuing earthly things is greater than that for pursuing heavenly things. And I'll give you one more. He said, finally, a genuine and strong longing for heaven honors God above everything else. Those who focus on heaven focus on the supreme one in heaven. By setting their hearts on him, they honor the one whose heart is set on them, end quote. All right. Well, we said we're going to talk about heaven, all right? Uh, we start Revelation 21. John says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Let me stop there. As we come to Revelation 21, we move from time into eternity. Remember that the millennial kingdom is not eternity, being that it has a beginning and an end. It's a thousand years in duration, which means because it is measured in years, it is still part of time. It is the final thousand years of human history. And I believe, without any doubt at all, it has to be literal. I believe the Bible teaches a literal 1,000-year millennial kingdom. I believe it has to be literal because through it, God is tying up all the loose ends, fulfilling all the promises he gave to Israel, and by extension, us, who are believers in Messiah, who are then called in the Bible descendants of Abraham by faith. Romans 11, Paul says we are then grafted into the promises God gave to the Jewish patriarchs. And so all the promises God gave to Israel, we inherit, along with the Jews who are born again. So I think it has to be literal, no doubt about it, because God is tying up all the loose ends, fulfilling all the promises he gave to Israel, of a Messiah who would come and reign over a kingdom that would cover the whole earth, where Satan would be defeated, and mankind would regain, listen, paradise lost. Paradise was lost in the Garden of Eden, literally. It has to be regained, literally, at some point in human history, and that history is the thousand-year millennial kingdom. 
The thousand-year millennial kingdom will be the culmination and climax of human history, and thus it is still part of time. Now, guys, as we studied Revelation 20, uh, that chapter focused on the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ upon the earth. And so now as we move from chapter 20 to chapter 21, we move from time into eternity, as I just said. At this point, guys, all of human redemptive history has come to an end. The millennium is over. Satan has been judged. The wicked have all been raised and cast into the lake of fire, which means at this point, listen, only eternity remains. And when I say only, that's everything. That's what we've been waiting for. It's heaven. Probably a new dimensionality. Something we... We try to think of and imagine what it's going to be like. We have no concept. It's like trying to explain to somebody born blind what a sunset looks like or what colors look like. They have no concept. They have no frame of reference. And so people talk to us as those blind about the glories of heaven, you know, because, you know, God wants to, you know, Paul said that <laughs> the Spirit of God is giving us a little preview down in the earth by being redeemed and being members of the body of Christ and the kingdom of God down here. But it can't even compare um, to what heaven's going to really be like. But um, by the time we come to Revelation 21, all, the redemptive, all of redemptive human history has come to an end. Everything's been taken care of. Again, the devil has been judged. Uh, he's been cast into the lake of fire. Uh, the wicked have all been raised and cast into the lake of fire, which means at this point now only heaven, only eternity remains. By the time we come to Revelation 21, guys, every trace of sin, along with the curse, every ounce of depravity and defilement has now been removed from God's original creation, and now God is going to make a new creation. Whoa, stop, wait a minute. If all sin has been removed from God's original creation, why does he have to make a new creation? Well, that's a good question. A redeemed creation is a fixed creation, but a new creation is one that's never been broken. And that's the thing. I mean, God fixes us. We were born fallen sinners. He saves us. But when we get our new body, he will completely recreate us and um, people say well why do we have to have a new creation if God has fixed the old one because the old one was broken it can never be unbroken it can be fixed but a new creation the one he's going to bring is going to be one that will never have been or will ever be broken and so John says now I saw listen a new heaven and a new earth. The Greek word is kainos, and it's not new in the chronological sense. The Greek word means something new in the qualitative sense, in the area of quality. The Greek word implies something that is brand new, fresh, never been seen before. I mean, think about this for one second. Isn't nature beautiful? I mean, some parts of the world are incredibly beautiful, you know? God made this world this beautiful in six days. Jesus said 1,900 years ago, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I'm going to come and get you when it's ready and take you to be there with me. If this world is this beautiful, not what man has done to it, but what God did in creating it, if it's this beautiful after having been created in six days, what is the world God is preparing for us that he's been working on for 1,900 years? I mean, it's amazing to think about, right? But again, some people believe that. What's in view when John says, uh, you know, I saw a new heaven and a new earth? Some people believe that what's in view here is that God is going to, listen, renovate the old heavens. Now, there was a program on years ago that I loved. And it was on Saturday, so that was the time I would break from doing my message, take a little break. It's around dinner time it would come on. So that was my thing, eating uh, on the, in front of the TV on Saturday, watching this old house. 
This old house was a program where they would take an old house and renovate it and make it look brand new. And some people believe that's what God's going to do when John says, you know, I saw a new heaven. It's going to be, you know, this new, this, this old house, this old heaven, you know. You know, where God is going to enter into a giant fixer-upper where he simply remodels the old heaven and the old earth, making them look brand new. But guys, actually God is not going to renovate the old. He's going to totally recreate them, the heavens and the earth. Recreate them from scratch, even as God prophesied through the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 65, verses 17 and 18. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered nor come to mind. Let me just stop there. We've talked about this before. Just in case somebody has joined us online and has never heard this before, I believe that heaven really wouldn't be fully enjoyed if we retained the knowledge of all our loved ones who didn't make it. So what God does in his mercy is once he makes the new heavens and the new earth, he wipes our memory banks out. Now, that doesn't mean we'll forget who we are. Doesn't mean we'll forget the people in heaven with us. Doesn't mean we'll forget what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. But all the people in our lives, all the bad things, all the women who have lived with the incredible pain of being molested sexually by family members especially by fathers or any kind of a horrible thing that some people have to live with all their life psychologically now right um god's gonna wipe all that away we it will no, no longer be remembered nor come to mind and i think that that is god in his wisdom and mercy making heaven everything he wants it to be for us a new home right a new home giving us basically new memories, all right? Verse 18, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem, a new Jerusalem, as a rejoicing and her people a joy. Uh, guys, notice how that God three times in this passage, Isaiah 65, verses 17 and 18, three times he uses the word create, which is the Hebrew word bara, and means to bring into existence something out of nothing. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1, bara, bara. Only God can bara. Man can assemble existing materials into something beautiful and as such be creative, quote-unquote, but we can't create like God by bringing into existence something out of nothing. This present heavens and earth are not some kind of giant fixer-upper that God is going to rehab. Listen, he is going to vaporize them and create something brand new, something that has never been tainted by sin. Turn to Second Peter 3. Peter talks about this. 2 Peter 3, starting with verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for, uh, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. When Peter says that this day of the Lord judgment will culminate with the heavens passing away with a great noise, 
he has in mind the total destruction of the physical universe. We see three words that are attributed to Peter in this passage uh, that, that is used to communicate this. Three words that are translated in my Bible, the New King James Version, as melt, then dissolved, and again dissolved. But in the Greek, Peter used a single word in the original, the Greek word luo, luo, which means to loose or untie. Let me explain where I'm going with this, and for that we need to go back to the creation of the physical universe. I'm not going to take you back to Genesis 1. Let's uh, turn first of all to Hebrews chapter 1. All right, Hebrews chapter 1, and let's look at starting with verse 1. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers, the Jewish patriarchs, you know, spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. Listen through whom also he made the worlds. Think of John chapter 1, verse 3. All things were made by him, Jesus Christ, and without him nothing was made that was made. Okay? That's what the writer is saying here. Through him Jesus made the worlds, the physical universe. Verse 3, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, Jesus being that of you know, the express image of God the Father's person, and upholding all things by the word of his power. Hold on to that last thought, how Jesus is upholding all things by the word of his power. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. And let's pick it up in verse 16. For by him, of course, Jesus... All things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things consist. The Greek word is, uh, are held together. So Paul is telling us that not only did Jesus create the physical universe, he is holding it all together. But then Peter, prophesying in 2 Peter 3, that there is coming a time when he will let go. That he's going to no longer hold the universe together. Uh, let me explain. And the word that Peter uh, used when it says that he will let go is the word luo, to loose um, let go, untie, that's the idea. Let me explain. When, when Paul said in Colossians 1.16 that Jesus created all things, visible and invisible, that would, of course, include atoms, atoms, which are invisible, uh, which are the invisible building blocks of all matter. All things that make up the physical universe are made up of atoms. And we know that atoms are made up of a nucleus that contains protons, which are positively charged particles. Um, and the nucleus also contains neutrons, which are neutrally charged or have no charge particles. And then orbiting around the nucleus of the atom is one or more electrons, which are negatively charged particles. Now, Coulomb's law of electricity says that like charges repel. You can prove Coulomb's law of electricity by taking two horseshoe magnets, putting them on a table where the positive on each magnet lines up with each other and the negative lined up. And then try to push those magnets together and you will feel them want to push away, right? Now if you exert enough force, you can bring those magnets together negative to negative, positive to positive, but you have to really exert enough force to do that, right? And all the while, they're going to want to push each other away. The force that brings them together has to be greater than the force that is pushing them apart, right? Keep that in mind. It's going to be very important in just a second, all right? 
Um, so Coulomb's law of electricity uh, says that like charges repel, whereas opposite charges attract. Flip one magnet over, now the negative and the positive poles are lined up, and, and it, it, it grabs it. It pulls itself together, the two magnets, right? But, but here's a great mystery. In the nucleus of, of the atom, protons, again, positively charged particles, are all packed together. Imagine you had a basketball loaded with protons, all right? Again, positively charged particles, all in that nuclei, all in that basketball, or in, in, in the nucleus of the atom, all bunched together. Again, Coulomb's law says that light charges repel. So what keeps these positively charged protons from pushing away from each other and splitting the atom wide open? Or in other words, what holds the protons inside of the nucleus of the atom together? Scientists don't know. Some have postulated a theory they have called atomic glue. You can run with that if you'd like. Um, but they really don't know what holds the atom together. Well, we know. We know because God told us. We know that, as the Bible says, it was Jesus who created all things. And it is Jesus who is holding all things together. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says, He holds it all together by the word of his power. So the same word of his power that brought the universe into existence, right? Genesis chapter 1, God said, let there be light, there was light. God said this, God said that on each of the six days of creation and different things came into existence. He created all things from nothing, bara, through the word of his power. But it's that same word, we are told later, that holds it all together. He created all things by the word of his power. And it's that same word of his power that is holding everything together. However, the Bible says that someday he will let go and no longer hold all the atoms in the universe together. Peter tells us what will happen. 2 Peter 3.10, the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. When Peter says the elements will melt, again, he uses the Greek word luo, which means to be loosed. Look, when scientists invented the atomic bomb, they figured out that if they took slow-moving neutrons and bombarded the nucleus of the atom, uh, or atoms, they were able to upset the molecular balance so that the protons in the nucleus, again containing all positive charges, began to respond according to their nature and started to repel each other. The result was that atomic fission was achieved as the atoms split, an incredible, releasing an incredible amount of energy, an explosion, the power of which mankind had never seen before. We had officially entered into the nuclear age. They say that the amount of nuclear material that was used in the atomic bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima was about the size of a dime. About the size of a dime. And look at the devastation it caused. You say, well, how does all this fit into what Peter is talking about? Good question. Bear with me just a little longer and I'll show you, right? The physical universe, I, I don't know how they get this, but scientists, you know, say the physical universe, they estimate it to be 12 billion light years in diameter. So from one end of the universe to the other end, 12 billion light years. Now, of course, a light year is the distance that light travels in one year. Light is fast. Light travels 186,000 miles a second. If you could jump on a beam of light, you could travel the earth, a circle the earth, seven and a half times in a single second. So light travels 186,000 miles a second. Now you times that by whatever it takes to get one year. How many seconds 
you know, in an hour, and you know, a day. Um, light travel, I'll save you the math, I've done it. Light travels uh, in a year about six trillion miles. Now when you realize our national debt is what, 30 trillion? Boy, they've really dug us into a hole. I mean, think about that, for some frame of reference. It's hard to even get your mind around, right? Um, so, a light year is the distance light travels in the year. The universe is 6 billion light years, or 12 billion light years in diameter. <laughs> we just talked about the nuclear material used in the bomb dropped on Hiroshima, the size of a dime. To think that someday Jesus, who is holding all the atoms in the universe together, is going to let go. And there's going to be a nuclear bomb detonated that is 12 billion light years in diameter big. It's incredible to think about. What's going to happen? Peter tells us. There is suddenly going to be a great noise. That's an understatement. There will suddenly be a great noise, and the physical universe, listen, will instantly be vaporized as everything will dissolve in zillion-degree fervent heat and cease to exist. Guys, the Big Bang didn't happen at the beginning. It's going to happen at the end. And make no mistake about it, this won't be a man-made nuclear event. It will be a divine judgment from God. As Isaiah prophesied, turn to Isaiah 24. Let's read it together. Some people might be prone to say, what's going to happen? Is there going to be a nuclear holocaust? No. This is not going to be a man-made nuclear event. This is going to be a judgment from God. And I, I believe Isaiah is talking about it, although I could be wrong. Isaiah 24, verses 4 to 6. The earth mourns and fades away. The world languishes and fades away. is no more. The haughty people of the earth languish. The earth is also defiled under its inhabitants because they have transgressed the laws of God, basically changed the ordinance, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore the curse has devoured the earth, and all those who dwell in it are desolate, destroyed is the idea. Therefore the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men are left. Well, the few men left could be a reference to believers who will be there when God destroys everything. We will be left. When you think about how many people are going to be saved, with, and, and compare that to all those who have ever lived on the earth from the beginning of creation all the way to the end of the millennial kingdom, it's not going to be many compared to all those people. Most people, unfortunately, although they could go to heaven because uh, Jesus died for the sins of the whole world, John says, not just for believers, First uh, John 2, verse 1, Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. But many people in the world don't want Jesus. And so it could be that is those who are few are left. Um, the language could be talking about something God is going to do during the tribulation period. Uh, I think it's a little bigger than that, but I could be wrong. I think it does have in view what Peter talks about, okay? And so, guys, as Jesus created all things in the physical universe and has been holding all the atoms together from that time, time of creation, to this day, by the word of his power, um, right after the millennial kingdom is done. The judgment has been, we, we spent the last few verses of chapter 20 looking at the great white throne judgment, where all unbelievers are resurrected, stand before Jesus, and uh, hear their uh, sentence, uh, their degree of suffering in hell. When that's all done and the last person is cast into hell, death and Hades are at that time cast into hell. All right? But right after the millennial kingdom is over, the final great white throne judgment, the Lord Jesus Christ will stop holding the atoms together and he will let go, Luo, destroying the present physical creation in a divine fiery judgment. And realize that it takes a stronger force 
to hold all the atoms in the universe together than the power released when they are torn apart. Uh, think about that again, right? The two magnets, right? Positive to positive, horseshoe magnets, negative to negative. If, if they're not that big, we can push them together if we try hard enough and really exert the force to keep them together. But the force we're exerting is greater than the force that pushes them apart, right? The force that is generated by atomic fission, when the whole universe, which is made up of atoms, everything splits at the same instant, you, you can imagine. Everything is going to be vaporized, gone. We'll be there because we'll have our glorified bodies. We'll have a front row seat. I, I can't even imagine what that's going to be like. We're going to find out. I want to bring this home and use a, a personal now application. And, and then we'll close because we're going to save the, the rest of, of chapter 21 or at least part of it for next time. But there is a physical, um, excuse me, there is not only a physical application to what we've talked about, you know, the physical universe being destroyed, right? Atoms splitting. But Jesus holding it all together until he does let go. There is a spiritual and even a psychological application as well. Jesus created you. Talking to you in this room, talking to you folks online. Jesus created all of us. And he is either holding your life together or it is coming apart. And now more than ever, now more than ever, Maybe you've been living your life for yourself. And you can do that for a while where things seem to be okay. I, I'm old enough to remember when they started to come out against cigarettes. For a while, it was, they were harmless, people thought. And they, and they, you know, and all the movies, the tough guys were all smoking. And, you know, then they began to realize that they caused cancer. Now, at first, people didn't want to believe it. Hardcore cigarette smokers didn't want to believe that. And what was it when you tell, you know, when people told them, look, cigarettes are bad for you, they cause cancer, lung cancer. The response was, nothing bad's happened to me yet. I, I think they're okay. That's how people live their lives apart from Christ. They can get away with that for a while. Things seem pretty good. You know, uh, I do believe God's just given grace that, you know, the goodness of God brings us to repentance. But the more a person puts their head down and charges ahead away from God to do their own thing, well, you know, life gets tougher and tougher. The Bible says, woe unto that person who strives with their maker. The way of the transgressor is what? Hard. So maybe a person for a while gets away with living for themselves and they think that they don't need God. All you Christians are weak. That's why you need Jesus. I don't need Jesus. Look at me. Got my own business. Life is good. And just like cigarette smokers didn't get cancer right away, but it was coming, so too a person's life is going to eventually begin to unravel. Either Jesus is holding it together or it's going to come apart. That's just all there is to it. Our society is full of people whose lives, marriages, and families are coming apart. Suicide is on the rise. People can't deal with it. And if you're not going to turn to Jesus for answers and strength, you're on your own. And a lot of people are turning to suicide because they feel like they have no other option. Their life is coming apart. Their life is, maybe it's completely apart. It's destroyed through alcohol or drugs of some kind or whatever. You've all heard about Ernest Hemingway. Ernest Hemingway was, of course, a brilliant writer, I mean, phenomenal writer, famous for his writing, but he was also a man's man. Ernest Hemingway was a hunter. 
He was a drinker. He was a brawler. He loved to get into fights. He was a tough guy from what I understand. And he just living out there, living his, doing his thing. But Christians would say to him when their paths crossed, Ernest, you need to give your heart to Jesus. He's gonna, he, 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 will, he will make your life meaningful. And Hemingway would laugh. He said, my life is meaningful. What do I need Jesus for? Telling me what to do. I do my own thing. I do what I want to do. Life is great. I go on safari. I'm hunting and blah, blah, blah. And he was a womanizer. He thought he was living large and, you know, only the weak need Jesus. So he got away with that for a while. But about 10 years down the road from when I was reading this story, how people had witnessed to him, about 10 years passed and his life began to crash and burn. I don't know all the details. All I do know is at one point he took his favorite shotgun, stuck it in his mouth and pulled the trigger. Either, you're, either Jesus is holding your life together or it's coming apart. Maybe this evening, and I'm not speaking just to the folks here, but online, maybe this evening, you know, you've come to a point where you're tired of trying to hold your life together. You can push the ends of those magnets together, but try holding them together for 30, 40, 50 years. It's a little exhausting because we don't have the strength to hold our lives together for a while maybe, but not ultimately. And maybe you've come to a point in your life tonight where you're tired of holding your life together. You've seen counselors. You've tried to numb the pain with alcohol and pills. You've even tried some esoteric remedies like transcendental meditation or yoga. Or what is with this goat yoga? Who invented that? Why do you have to have goats walking on you? I don't get, how is that relaxing? I, I'm sorry. I'm just, you know, see this goat yoga. Who came up with that? You know, well, what's next? Anyway, but maybe you've gone that goat yoga route or hypnosis or some other worldly, actually demonic <laughs> pursuits and practices, but your life is still coming apart. Look, the only answer is Jesus. I told you about my mom uh, some weeks ago. And my mom, God love her, she's with the Lord. But there was a time in her life when she was seeking God. Now, we were raised Roman Catholics. Uh, we had gone to church. You know, she had gone to church when she was young and took us, my dad and her. You know, they, then they wound up not going anymore. We had to go on our own. But, you know, uh, got there late. You know, it was about a mile. You got to walk a mile, you know, as a kid. And so, uh, you know get there late, leave right after communion. That was the, you know, so get there late, leave early. That was the thing, right? Um, but my mom, at one point, wanted to find God. Now, she didn't know at that point, you don't find God because he's not lost. He's looking for you. And as he begins to call you, what happens is you begin to develop a desire to know God. He's looking for you. A good shepherd goes out looking for lost sheep, Jesus said. The sheep don't look for the shepherd. The sheep don't even know they're lost. They're too stupid to know they're lost. <laughs> we didn't know we were lost. We were too dumb. And, and, and it wasn't until, you know, we got so entrenched in sin and everything was falling apart. And the Lord says, uh, Phil, you dummy. No, he didn't say that. He's very kind. Uh, hey, what you need is me, right? So my, he did that with my mom. and um, But before he did that, well, he was calling her, but she started looking for God in all kinds of places. Now, if you've ever met my mom, she was not a weird person, but she got into some weird things looking for God. I mean, she got into hypnosis, handwriting analysis, Ouija boards, astrology, seances, <laughs> you know, and all the while, God was right there. 
She knew the gospel. We were raised in the Catholic Church. The basic gospel, uh, she knew. Jesus was her Savior, died for her sins, rose again the third. She knew all that. But it wasn't until one day when, make a long story short, she had finally moved into the house, my dad and her. Uh, he started a business, made a little money, more than he had been. And so they bought a house not far from here, a nice two-story house with a fireplace. He always wanted a fireplace. Moved from a little house in Elk Grove, five kids, to this beautiful house. All new. And the way she tells the story, um, she loved to decorate for the holidays. My mom made the holidays very special. Christmas was awesome. And so the first year we were in, the first Christmas we were in this new house, she decked it out like crazy. It was beautiful, like something out of a magazine, right? Well, we were a little older by this time, so we were all out doing our thing at this one evening, and she was sitting by the fireplace, and tree was lit, and all the decorations were out, and it looked like something out of a, a beautiful uh, magazine. And she says, I just sat there on the couch looking at all this stuff. Everything I always wanted. None of it made me happy. She said, I felt so down. So empty, I just cried. She said, I just cried out a simple prayer. God, if you're real, show me. <laughs> the next day, two brothers from a Baptist church down the road. Look, at the end of the day, families, we can fight a little bit, we can disagree. At the end of the day, we're brothers and sisters. And these two men, God bless them, God love them, were out walking the neighborhood, knocked on her door. She opened it and said, and they said to her, we'd like to talk to you about Jesus. She was wide open. Yes, come in. And they led her to Christ right there. And that began her spiritual journey. She fell in love with the word. They moved out to California not many months after that. They had planned to do that. God was leading them in the next phase of their journey. They moved into their new house, Southern California, 10 minutes from Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa. That's how we got connected to Calvary Chapel. Pastor Chuck Smith was my pastor 2,000 miles away. But the Lord put her life together, her marriage back together. They almost got divorced when I was 10. And she said I could share this while she was alive. She told me I could share this. Um, they both had affairs on each other. Their marriage was not doing well. At one point, my mom moved out, took my youngest brother to California for a month. She was going to live with her brothers out there. I was 10. I stayed course I didn't go I was in school you know how traumatic that is for a 10 year old to think your parents are going to split up well she eventually came back she said because of us chil children she she wanted to work it out because of the kids and then eventually God got a hold of her and she got saved but if it wasn't for Jesus holding her life together and eventually bringing her to him? I don't know where they'd be. I don't know where any of us would be. If it wasn't for Jesus Christ who created us, and now we said, Lord, take over. I want you to hold my life together. I want to do what you want me to do. I want to live for you. I want to give you my life. I want to live for your glory not my glory anymore that's where I was living for myself living for my glory building my kingdom upon the earth look there's only one person I'm done that can hold our lives together the one who created us he is the only one strong enough to hold our lives together starting 
with the purpose for which you were and I was created, to bring him glory. And when you finally figure that out, and you will when you give your heart to Christ, when you finally figure out life is not about what God's going to do for you, it's about how you're going to live for him, everything comes into focus. Everything comes into focus. Until then, you can grope around with your eyes, you know, in darkness, trying to stumble on truth. What is truth? As Pilate said, nobody knows unless you open the word. Then you can find out what truth is. So I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And we are going to live in this new kingdom someday. We'll pick it up. We didn't get very far. In verse 1, again, next week, God willing. Father, thank you. We all have a story. We all have a testimony. And it all revolves around you. And how you reached out to us. And how you loved us. And how you pursued us. And how, Lord, you tackled us at one point. And you made us a new creation. Old things passed away. Everything became new. And we're waiting for a new kingdom. Where you're going to be the king on the earth for a thousand years and then into eternity in heaven. We thank you, Lord. We ask you to keep blessing these studies in your word. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.